Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. Charles Adler joins me. My chorus radio network colleague, his evening program is heard Monday to Friday in Vancouver, Winnipeg, Edmonton, and Calgary. We like to say we're brothers, maybe from different mothers. Maybe. 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 We'll have to talk about that in a couple of weeks' time. <laughs> Roy, I hope you're getting good quality on me. I was uh, kicked out of the house uh, because uh, on holiday weekends, uh, my wife has a rule. I, I cannot discuss politics, especially around the dog. <laughs> I'm, in a, I'm in a park right now where there is no anger so if, if people aren't picking up on any kind of uh, angry mood in British Columbia based on this uh, pristine setting I'm I'm in a 24 degree day uh, not, nothing but, but sunshine and, and happy dogs uh, my apologies in advance well let me ask you how this happened how did the last week happen the Liberals with just one more seat than the NDP and the Greens combined was the province foreseeably so closely divided earlier in the week? Yeah, the uh, the province is very divided, and, and BC is always divided. That's why it's a great place for talk radio. And if you don't mind me putting in a plug for you, that's why we're we're so thrilled to get you back on and CKNW in in the Vancouver and Greater Mainland, Lower Mainland area uh, as of as of next weekend. Thank but you, yeah, Charles. BC is BC is always divided. It's got the the right center thing happening. I mean, uh, the Liberal Party isn't anything like the. The Federal Liberal Party, it's just uh, it's known as a, a free enterprise coalition. And uh, what unites uh, everyone under the B.C. Liberals banner, that's the provincial party, B.C. Liberals, what unites everyone is uh, either loathing, uh, contempt, suspicion of uh, the NDP. And, of course, in the last uh, little while, because we have an economy that's hotter than a forest fire, Many people have uh, become complacent about who the fiscal stewards might be, and so they're taking a chance by taking it to the left for a while, and many people feel okay about that right now because it's a minority government, and I guess the feeling is if uh, they screw up really, really badly, they'll get tossed out on their ear in, I guess, six months or a year. So the Liberal Party has an interesting decision to make concerning Christy Clark. Keep her on as leader for a while in case the NDP and the Greens coalition does stumble badly in the short term or orchestrate the departure of Christy Clark a little bit later just to be able to introduce a new leader of the party should the coalition survive for a while. How's that going to go, do you think? Well, it, it depends on who's got the hammer in the decision-making, but if the executives want to sort of... Um be very, very, what I would call intellectually rigorous and intellectually honest here. They have to honestly admit to themselves that Christy Clark, for the last little while, has been a drag on the party. And I don't think it would be irrational to conclude that the B.C. Liberals might have won a fifth term if someone other than Christy Clark were leading them. So the idea of them preparing for the next election with the drag on the party as the leader doesn't make a whole lot of political sense to me. And Charles, so you're not hearing any specific buyer's regret 
from British Columbia voters in the first few days after the election. I don't hear any uh, panic, and that's because it's a minority. But uh, if it was an NDP majority, I think uh, some people would get rather rather anxious, despite the fact that they say uh, we've got a, a hot economy right now. But, uh, Roy, you and I, this isn't our first rodeo, and we've seen uh, politicians destroy hot economies. Very quickly, too. So if you look at this coalition... Yeah, you're you're... I, don't, I, you know, I, I realize that I've got a quote Western perspective, because that's where my arse is, but, you know, I've got a national perspective and i've spent you know half my life in in the other part of the country either growing up in montreal or many years in 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 toronto and in hamilton and burlington and london look um ontario is the best example of uh what not to do uh when you've got a great economy i i have always believed and will always believe that ontario has missed out on trillions of dollars of opportunity because of who's at queen's park i'm going to ask a question shortly about how voters in Ontario will likely decide next year. Um, the Progressive Conservative Party leader has been almost absent. Patrick Brown has been so, uh, really, um, he's been a mirage. So, and, and Wynne has slowly been gathering momentum, and I wouldn't put it past the Liberals to possibly survive, because Patrick Brown at the moment couldn't sell a donut to a cop. But... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, I think. Look, I mean, Patrick Brown has no doubt been told by many people uh, to play it safe. Uh, don't become a target. That uh, all you have to do is uh, look like uh, you know you're not going to soil yourself. You just have to sort of look respectable because this isn't really about you. Uh, this is about her. And as long as uh, people feel that uh, by voting against her, uh, they'll get someone that they can they can stomach then that's okay. I, I think that's the, the strategy he's deploying. And, you know, people have deployed it at times successfully and, and at times not successfully. I think, though, at this point, Roy, you, you have, you'd have to admit that it is, and I know we've said this, you know, before, we said it, you know, five years ago, we've said it nine years ago, it is the Conservatives to lose right now. It is. And I, I think he just doesn't want to repeat the, the mistakes. But at least, Charles, he needs to pop his head above the surface occasionally. <laughs> no, I... He still has to be a man. He Patrick, still has. Patrick, he still has to be a man. Patrick, I know. You, I know you're a follower. I know you're not taking this the wrong way. Um, you, you do have to have a pair uh, for a campaign. It is a campaign. It is a fight. Uh, you, you can't just hide in the tall grass. Not only do you have to have a pair, you have to make other people aware that you have a pair. <laughs> no, Roy, we, we rarely disagree. We really are brothers. I know. We. I'm I know. Never, <laughs> I'm never going to disagree with you on this one. Uh, you have to have others. Uh, that you have a pair, yes. Yeah. So um, the NDPs and the Greens, let me come back to British Columbia for a moment. This coalition. Now, uh, Horgan and uh, and Weaver didn't really get along all that well, at least publicly in the legislature. When you put those two parties together, what is the likely impact going to be on the national economy when you look at pipelines and other BC energy and natural resources projects, which will affect the rest of the country? Well, we need, uh, we need pipelines, and you know how I feel about that. That's another one where we're on the same page. But we are not on the same page with much of uh, British Columbia on that one, and we're certainly not on the same page with either Weaver or Horgan. Now, that is going to be a real conundrum. And unfortunately, and this is where we bring national politics to bear, unfortunately, we do not have a person sitting in the prime minister's office who has the what we'll call the, because it's the Canada Day weekend, so I'm going to be relatively gentle here. Uh, Justin Trudeau does not have the moral authority uh, to get Weaver and Horgan on side. No, he doesn't. 
No, he doesn't. That's another question I'm going to be asking. How Canadians are prepared to vote in 2019? It's not that far away. There's a new Conservative leader. The eventual NDP leader is going to be known by the end of the year. People are already starting to think very seriously about 2019, and Trudeau starting to slip in the polls. So as you look at the overall picture in Canadian politics, what's your assessment? Well, my assessment is that it's very, very fluid. Uh, I think that uh, when uh, you and I were growing up, and uh, growing up certainly in, in talk radio, interviewing all these uh, political scientists, uh, they would always say to us that, you know, 90% of the public is absolutely in cement. They just keep voting for the same people all the time. That is now nonsense. You can you can you can throw that into the into the bucket. Uh, that's just not true anymore. Uh, very few people are faithful to any particular political party, and people's feelings are rather volatile. So you can look at what's going on right now and try to project it out onto the next year or two years, but that's a mug's game. We, we really don't know. But events determine everything, and whatever events are going on at that particular time, whether it's the federal election, the Ontario election, the Alberta election. Those events and, how, of course, how the people in government respond to them, that's what's going to have, the, I think, the largest impact on the vote. Charles, thanks for the time. Please thank your wife for setting you free for a few minutes and thank the, do- <laughs> thank the dog. <laughs> Moo Moo, I love you. That's, that's my dog. And Boo Boo, that's my wife. I love you, too. <laughs> I'll, I'll see you in a few weeks. You bet. All right, Charles. All the best. Charles Adler, Chorus Radio host on uh, CKNW in Vancouver, 630 Chad. In Edmonton, Newstalk 770 in Calgary, and CJOB in Winnipeg. You can hear them every evening, and you can listen online on any of those radio stations. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. But I want to uh, introduce on this Sunday, they make a rare Sunday appearance, and boy, we appreciate it, Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca, Michelle Simpson, former uh, seatmate to Justin Trudeau, Liberal MP, at uh, Michelle Simpson on Twitter, and we're trying to reach Linda Leatherdale, but uh, she's at, a, at a, uh, a weekend event, so we may not be able to do that today. In any event, Catherine, Michelle, thank you for taking the time on Sunday. This is a Hello. rare treat and a nice way to celebrate Canada's 150th birthday. Talking party. about Donald Trump? No, just making <laughs> two... Uh, doing two segments this week. Aren't you sweet? Thank you very much. And Miss Swift, did we drag you out of the lake? <laughs> you actually literally did. <laughs> Fortunately, one of my sons was watching the ball game, yeah. and I was out tending to my beach. <laughs> and uh, he, Mom, radio! <laughs> <laughs> that was quite funny. Well, anyway, you know that you know, know that you know that drone that's been circling around your house. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that's us. I thought it was the unions. <laughs> yeah, they have the other one waiting to pick me off. <laughs> so look, before before I ask you about Donald Trump, what I'd like to do is play for you the audio of Donnie Deutsch, who's a regular contributor to the uh, Morning Joe show on MSNBC with uh, Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski. And it was before uh, Scarborough and Brzezinski spoke out the other morning about Donald Trump's tweets. So he was essentially uncontrolled. And, and have a listen to how, how this all developed on the air. 
Now we've got Donnie Deutsch with us. Donnie wearing shades this morning. What's I, up, man? I had a little work done, and I, I just am a little self-conscious about it. So, but what'd you do? But, like a lift? Just a little eye thing. A little tuck. I just a little, but yeah, I'm a little sensitive to it. So, no. For, first of all, you know, he picked the wrong schoolyard to come into. I have to tell you this. So, you know, I. Uh, I'm not an employee of NBC, so I can, I'm going to go thug here, okay? I'm sorry, because Mika is a friend of ours. She's a good woman. She's a great mom. And he's a pig. He's a vulgar pig. And I find what's ironic about, you know, Michelle Obama says when they go high, we go, and when they go low, we go, when he goes low, I'm going low. You guys will take the high road. I'm going to take the low road. He's physically disgusting to look at. I mean, that's what I find ironic about the way he starts to always go after other people's physical attributes. So beyond the fact that he's obviously not well, and Joe and Mika have a great comment, he's clearly, forget, obviously, the obvious misogynism, the obvious vulgarity, the obvious stupidity, he's not mentally okay. And what, this is a man with nuclear codes. We have to start paying attention to it. And he's disgusting to look at. I, I know everybody's going to say, Donnie, but no, 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 no. This so, is, on so many levels. No, no, uh, let me tell you why it's not relevant. Because enough is enough. Enough is enough with this disgusting, vulgar man. And to talk about women that way, and the irony is that I can't, you're, 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 you physically look like you do beyond the stupidity of it. You're a pig, you are, you, are a, you are a bully, and you are doing disgusting things to this country. But Donnie, doesn't it lower again yes, the discourse I'm, to say for me, what yes. you said about his physical appearance? You know what? It absolutely does. And maybe it's time that we all stop tippy-toeing. I'm taking the low ground here. You know what? He goes after a woman that way. He goes after a friend that way. He is a vulgar human being. He's vulgar to look at. He's, he's disgusting. The way he behaves himself as the president. I'm sorry, I probably won't be on the show again, but... Sorry, put the shades back on. Right. At least your reaction. So, uh, there from the MSNB morning show, just before, MSNBC morning show, just before Joe and Mika responded to, um, to Donald Trump's tweets. Later on, Donnie Deutsch challenged Donald Trump to a fight in a schoolyard, saying, there, we're both from Queens, I'll meet you in the schoolyard. So, this is, this is the way it's developing around the President of the United States. And uh, before I say anything else, I, but Michelle, let me uh, let me have you re respond to what you just heard and and your thoughts on Trump. You're no fan of Donald Trump's. Uh, just let us have it. No, I, I, you know, Roy, I'm not a fan. Um, what I find ironic is how thin-skinned Donald Trump is, and that he has sidetracked his own agenda. He started to get a few things done, and on the days he has successful days, he absolutely is self-sabotaging. He cannot rise above the criticism. Look at George W. Bush. He was, he was teased and ribbed about how he spoke. Uh, you know, he had the Archie Bunker words. He didn't have them correct. But, you know, um, I, I don't know if he's mentally ill. There's just, um, as soon as you get into someone's looks, male or female, you lose me. Okay. Catherine, what about you? I don't know why somebody doesn't get Trump off Twitter, period. I, I mean, it's, it's just to me seems he digs himself a bigger grave every time he goes on Twitter. And, and I mean, I think, yes, there's definitely sexism in 
how he insults women, but he also seems to insult men quite a bit. So, so I think he's a, a you know an equal opportunity in a way um, a insulter. But what what gets me? And I was reading about this exchange and how he, he seems to talk strangely frequently about women bleeding. What is that? That to, that strikes me as so bizarre. Yeah, it is. It, it, what what is that? I, I like I don't know the answer, but. You know, he talked about Megyn Kelly that way back in the day, and now mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, this Mika woman, um, you know, bleeding from a facelift. I mean, it, it just sounds nuts, actually. It sounds inexplicable. But I don't know why one of his handlers doesn't just get him right they've off tried. Twitter. They've tried. You know, they've tried. It, well, but surely, anyway, but clearly he doesn't re- have, have the good sense to realize it's hurting him more than helping him. And I agree with Michelle. The thin-skinnedness, listen, Whenever you're in a position, I'm sure you, you guys, you guys, Roy and Michelle, you've dealt with it. When I was head of CFIB, I got insulted like you wouldn't believe. What you do is you let it roll off your back. You that to. is the mature, yeah. Yeah. adult, sensible thing to do because all you're doing is, is telling your, you know, people that insult you, you're flattering them by reacting to it. Ignore them. But he doesn't have the capacity to do that, seemingly. So, so when, you, when you hear Trump, I think I know what your response is. I think I do. When you hear Donnie Deutsch talk about him being a d- disgusting human being, uh, a pig, uh, all the other things that the panelists on MSNBC's morning show said, when you hear that, is that something that actually registers, or is it lost in the greater mosaic of Trumpism? It's lost in the noise. You know, it really is. Because we all know that Donald Trump, all I see is that thin-skinned individual who is not governing but is reacting to personal criticism, Roy. And that's not good when you're um, the president of the most powerful nation on the globe. They have a different system in the United States to ours. So the president really is the president. And uh, he doesn't have to listen. He's got one-third of the power. He doesn't have to listen to Congress. It's smart if he does, because particularly when you've got all three branches, I mean, you should be able to get legislation through and get things done. But he has power that a prime minister of Canada probably does not have. He has, the you know, his commander-in-chief, uh, I suppose, Justin power, Trudeau. Yes. Well. So... So he, he can do whatever he darn well pleases. But um, I, I guess what, 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 what I want to know is, do you think that among women that he is going to lose votes because of what he's doing? Or will women who support Donald Trump, who supported him on November the 8th, say, look, he's just fighting back. He's going back against the elitists. He's taking them on. There's nothing wrong with what he's doing. And, uh, and we support him. Where do you think it's going to fall? He's going to, he's not expanding his base. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's appealing to his core. Mm-hmm. And unless he expands it, he will go down as a one-term president. If they get, the Democrats get a credible candidate. How do you think people in this country will respond? Because leading up to the election, and we started early on in the primaries to talk about Trump, 
And it almost became it became self-driven. I didn't have to do anything or say anything. If I didn't talk about him, I caught hell on the air. So, um, and 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 in, and in social media, so it, it was self-driven, and there was a huge amount of support for Donald Trump. Probably ninety-five, ninety-eight percent support for Trump on the phones and on social media. People corresponding with me. Do you think that Canadians will be turned off by this, or do you think? He, I, I, you know, part of me says. Because he won the five of the GOP won the five special elections, part of me says, what he's doing has been done so frequently, it's rolling off people's backs. Well, I, I think Can- Canadians on balance already don't like him, and I don't know that this will do it, make any difference to that. And his base in the U.S. has proven amazingly resilient. Mm-hmm. And these kinds of comments that he just made recently—it's not the first time he's made those kind of comments. No, it isn't. So as a result, I can't imagine it's actually going to hurt his base in the U.S. I really can't. Do you think that when Mika Brzezinski, and I was going to find some clips about what she said about him, and then I got caught up doing other things before I went on the air, but I was going to find some clips, but she has said some uh, very harsh things about the President of the United States. Uh, do you think that that will soften the blow or soften uh, the view of Trump? My my sense, the way I look at it is this. You're the president of the United States. Maintain some mystique about the office. Don't react. Don't respond. All you're doing is helping the other guys. Yep. And then just steer the ship you, the way you want it to go. And that will trouble them more than anything else you do. If you just drive your agenda through and you ignore them, that will be more troublesome than anything else. Well, absolutely, Roy. And don't forget, you you said earlier, he's got control of both houses right now. He does. In the U.S. All yet, three branches. What he's doing by these kinds of comments, these mm-hmm. kinds of really ill-considered comments, to put mm-hmm. it mildly, he's turning off people in his own party that would normally be wanting to further his agenda. So I can't see that helping him either, because there's a lot of Republicans that really don't like those kind of comments he's making, Mm -hmm. and maybe they're going to work to stymie him in getting his legislation through. So that's another audience, not just his base or, you know, the general public. That's another audience that's pretty important. Yeah, yeah, and and there are Republicans who are really upset with his tweeting. Oh, yeah. yeah, they are. Well, thank you, Michelle, and thank you, Catherine. Not at all. For joining us today. I'm going back in the lake. Back in the lake with you. (laughs) Thank you, Michelle, Catherine. I really appreciate it. Happy uh, Canada weekend. Exactly. Happy Canada weekend to you as well. Catherine Swift, Michelle Simpson, two of the three beauties. Linda's involved with a, she's the chair of the uh, business, uh, the BIA in Oakville, Ontario. Uh, She's down by the lake doing BIA business. We weren't able to connect with her. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I guess it's been about uh, two months since we first started talking about, seriously talking about chronic pain on this program. And uh, it was even before that that we spoke with physicians about their views of patients who complain of chronic pain, and opioids. And you've heard all about the, um, the opioid emergency and the opioid crisis, and it's a message that has been delivered over and over again by politicians and by medical authorities, and it is a message that is entirely flawed. It's a message that it is being spun, and it's a message that is creating victims, and the victims it's creating are chronic pain patients are not complaining in the main. They're keeping quiet because they've been stigmatized for long periods of time. 
they're starting to speak out now because they have a bit of a venue and a bit of a forum. And frankly, this program has created uh, some of that venue and some of that forum. And I'm glad we were able to do that because not what we're telling you is the truth. What we're sharing with you is, in fact, what's happening, not what's being spun. Now, many of you will remember I had a conversation with the Federal Minister of Health about chronic pain and chronic pain patients. And one day soon, we'll play that whole interview for you again. But I just want to play a little bit of the interview now to set things up as we're going forward with my guests this hour. I want you to listen to the very, very beginning of that interview with the Federal Minister of Health, Dr. Jane Philpott. Dr. Philpott, why is all the talk from governments about painkillers instead of pain? You do know that people who take painkillers, people who take opioids, do it just to make life tolerable. Well, I think that's a fantastic point, and uh, I think you're absolutely right that uh, it's a fair point that the conversation needs to be around the pain and recognizing that when people do take uh, substances that uh, are used for controlling pain, it's because they have pain, sometimes uh, physical, sometimes psychological, but uh, the pain is uh, certainly should be a central theme to this conversation. So then why is all the talk about the painkillers instead of the pain? Well, I, you know, I think it depends who you talk to. I, I, I think this is a, an issue that has a whole range of perspectives on it and, and views, and I certainly uh, try to encourage people to uh, not oversimplify it and not, uh, not see that uh, there's any one single story to uh, the issue of the fact that uh, we have uh, an overdose uh, epidemic in this country. But uh, you're absolutely right that part of the conversation has to be around the fact that uh, people uh, have pain and that they, if, if they do, that they deserve to get care for that pain. Fantastic question, the minister said, and I asked. Fantastic question. Well, there's, there's spin right there. And I did say to the minister a little later on, you haven't answered any of my questions yet, and she hadn't. And there is spin. And there's not a, not a whole lot of different scenarios. And what you're receiving as far as statistics are concerned are statistics that generally do um, reflect what's happening with uh, generic drug addicts using opioids and not chronic pain patients who use opioid medications simply to keep their pain under control and give them some quality of life. Here's an email that I received uh, earlier this week. We just lost another intractable nerve pain member of our support group two nights ago. She was just 30 years old and committed suicide because her medications were taken away for interstitial cystitis, a horribly painful bladder condition, and pudendal neuralgia, both of which she had battled for years. The nerve pain is equivalent to end-stage cancer pain, but the CDC and the doctors in Colorado were merciless. She just couldn't hang on any longer without hope. All right, that's from the United States. It's happening there. It's happening here. 30 years of old, 30 years of age, committing suicide. From the 2017 Canadian Guideline for Opioids for Chronic Non-Cancer Pain, comprised by the National Pain Center, this is the kind of thing that bothers me. I've heard this particular statistic that I'm going to give you right now, repeat it again and again and again and again and again in media, and no one asks the most obvious question, excuse me, but I did, of the editor of the guide, and he acknowledged that. So here's the information. Listen to this. 
In Ontario, annual admissions to publicly funded treatment programs for opioid-related problems doubled between 2004 and 2013 from 8,799 to 18,232. All right. 2004 and 2013, the numbers were 8,799 and 18,232 in Ontario. Uh, annual admissions to publicly funded treatment programs for opioid-related problems. The question that needs to be asked is this. How many of these people were chronic pain patients and how many were generic drug addicts? And when I asked, when I asked the editor that question, he said, well, we don't know. We don't know. My guess is the number of uh, generic drug addicts hugely outnumbers the, uh, the chronic pain patients. I want to read you one more thing and then I'll introduce you to my guests. I'm hearing from doctors. Oh, we spoke with Dr. Mary Redmond, pain uh, specialist in Ottawa, 1,200 pain patients a couple of weeks ago. Well, here's an email that I received, just a line from an email that I received from an emergency room doctor. And uh, he writes about patients. One was 54 years old with failed back, surgery that initially worked, but then the pain returned, on a stable dose of Oxyneo for 12 years, their GP then advises them that the clinic owners have decided that the physicians must stop prescribing narcotics. You got it? The clinic owners have decided the physicians must stop prescribing narcotics. There was no attempt to wean slowly or suggest alternatives. The GP called them a drug addict. All right. The GP called the 54-year-old patient with a failed back a drug addict and cast them out on their own. They came to the methadone clinic. After three difficult months, they're on a stable dose of methadone, but not before severe depression and almost losing their job. 75-year-old patient on Oxyneo at a stable dose for 17 years for severe osteoarthritis, told by their GP that they were afraid the college may... Um, afraid of the college, and they would no longer prescribe the patient's narcotics. No attempt to wean or give meds to help with the withdrawal. That's the reality. Here's more of the reality. Dawn Ray Downton has been a guest on this program over the last several weeks. She's a chronic pain sufferer. She is also a journalist, and she's written op-ed pieces on this issue in the Globe and Mail and in the Ottawa Citizen. There'll be more to come. And last weekend, Dawn Ray was on the air with her husband, Bob, and it was very difficult, very painful to hear her speak about her suicide plan being in place with her husband on the line and the two of them talking about it. Imagine living in that relationship, somebody you love, somebody you care about more than anything else in the world, and they're reliant on fentanyl that they've had for 12 years. And then uh, there's a, well, we'll let Don Ray fill, fill, fill the rest of, of, the, of the conversation. And so, Don Ray, let me first of all say hello and thank you for coming back. Glad to be back. Also, want to introduce you again to Catherine. She was the first chronic pain patient we spoke to. She's 42 years of age. She's a successful businesswoman, and uh, she requires um, opioids. And her situation was that a doctor she's never seen, never spoken to, who has, I guess, a god complex somewhere in this country, instructed her family doctor, who actually sees Catherine to take her off breakthrough drugs and that breakthroughs are when when your when your opioid is 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 not doing the job 
so you, you get a little extra of a few milligrams to just boost the effect up a bit. And that doctor, Catherine, you never saw, never spoke with, never examined you, took those away from you, right? That's right. Thank you for coming back. Thanks for having me, Roy. Also with us, Marvin Ross, who writes on health issues and for the Huff Post. He's a tremendous columnist. And uh, Marvin has taken on the issue of and for chronic pain patients, and you can find his columns on HuffPostCanada.com. And Marvin, thank you for coming back. And Marvin, in two or three sentences, what is the problem about? Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words and having me back. Um, The problem is, I think, hysteria on the part of governments who have no clue how to deal with people who are overdosing on street drugs. So they therefore take it out on the easiest target they can find, and that's on legitimate pain patients who aren't taking illegal drugs, but they're taking drugs that their doctors have prescribed for them, which are legally available to be prescribed by doctors because they've been approved by Health Canada. And in one of your columns, the headline was, Ontario declares war on pain patients. That's also on HuffPost Canada. We're going to come back. We'll talk to Catherine, we'll talk to Don Ray, and we'll talk more with, more with Marvin before the end of the hour. We'll have an American uh, chronic pain activist joining us as well. I want to say this. The numbers of chronic pain patients, and we might as well call it what it is, agony pain patients, um, are high. 20% maybe higher in Canada. There's a study in the United States that suggests over 100 million people in the U.S. are living with chronic, massive pain. I think a lot of it has to do with money. They're expensive in those numbers, and they're trying to cut costs. And at the other end of that, uh, the other end of that seesaw is the chronic pain patient. And when I read that e- email about the 30-year-old woman committing suicide because they took her meds away, well, I, I was absolutely, I. I I can't even tell you how I felt. I can't. Angry was was for probably the first emotion. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. Don Ray, what happened to you this week? What's going on in your life? What's changed? Well, I had kind of a a, a shock a shock on Friday. Um, I have an appointment coming up at my pain clinic on uh, Friday, the 14th of July, and it's beginning to feel like um, it's more the 13th, uh, Friday the 13th, uh, that that's what it's going to turn into. I've been very anxious about it. I called the pain clinic on Friday knowing that I would get uh, a voicemail greeting, but I was surprised to find that the voicemail greeting was changed. Um, it used to be that there was a really wonderful receptionist there, and she just had a really great voicemail. She told me that she practiced it over and over just to make sure that she got every detail in that anyone could ever need to know. That was gone. She was gone. And there was a new message that gave no useful information whatsoever, but it did say something that, kind of, that I found staggering. It said, if you are a previous patient of Dr. Bond, please note that we have received an overwhelming number of referrals and wait times will be communicated to your referring or family doctor once they have been triaged. And then she goes on to say at the end something that I found completely ironic. She ended by saying, have a safe day. 
Let me explain why this uh, startled me in the way that it did. There are very few pain clinics in the Maritimes. I live in Halifax, and there are two pain clinics in the, in the metro area. Uh, the one that I go to happens to be um, across the water, across the harbor in, in Dartmouth at the Dartmouth General Hospital. Three years ago, it had, two, two or three years ago, it had three pain physicians working. When one of them retired, they didn't replace him. So the clinic then um, took its patient load and divided it between the two remaining physicians, one of whom is my pain physician. In another place in Dartmouth, there was a small private practice, actually not that small, but a private practice uh, run by Dr. Bond, who is referred to in the, in the new voicemail greeting that I got at the Dartmouth General. Dr. Bond has just closed his practice, and I'd already heard the rumor that everybody in his practice was going to be referred to my pain clinic at the Dartmouth General. And so that is the point of the, the voicemail message where the person who doesn't identify herself now says, if you are a previous patient of Dr. Bond, please note that we have received an overwhelming number of referrals and wait times will be communicated to your referring or family doctor once they have been triaged. My, my point is this that the clinic is already overburdened because three doctors' patients have now been imposed on two doctors, and my own doctor appears to be getting ready to retire. He hasn't said this to me, but he suggested it in enough ways that I think that he will be retired by the end of the summer. They didn't replace the last guy who retired. Will they replace my doctor, or will we just have the one physician left? For all of, for the, all of the pain clinic's patients now, plus the, pain, uh, the Dr. Bond's patients coming in, if, if we do have just one pa uh, physician left, we're all sunk because she's a newly minted type and she likes to say that she never uses opioids. There are plenty of patients at the clinic right now who rely on opioids. I'm one of them. When my guy goes, I've already been worried about what my future holds. Now I find that an entire practice, Dr. Bond's patients, have been transferred more or less into the ether. They're, they have had overwhelming numbers of referrals, and the wait times will be um, will be overwhelming as well. So I'm just wondering what's going to happen to Dr. Bond's patients, right? Who and appear you... to be just hanging in the ether, and what will happen to me if they do get uh, uh, merged? If they, if they become merged with the, with my clinic, uh, it just gets worse all the time. There's just not yeah. enough pain management here. And and you have a doctor potentially who who takes great pride in saying she's never prescribed opioids. Yes, Kath she's, she's working now at the clinic. Catherine, what's, uh, what's the most recent development with you? Um, oh, boy. I, well, I think I told you last week or a couple weeks ago that uh, I just found out that I'm emergency on the liver transplant list. Right. Um, so that just happened. Um, and so I've been following up with with my family doctor as far as reduced um, breakthrough meds and whatnot, and that has had no change. Are they giving you, are they giving the opioids you need, the pain meds you need? They're giving me the, um, the content, so the, the long release. Mm -hmm. or the, yeah. So I, I do have those which have been reduced substantially. Um, and the breakthroughs so, have been taken away. That's correct. Yeah. So how are you doing? Not well. I I went to the marijuana clinic this week or this week. 
and got flat out denied. They they said absolutely not, and they're they're treating me like a, a drug a street user, and um, it, it's just horrible. So and you're I, the one you're the one in tremendous pain, yeah. who's on an organ transplant list. That's right. And you ask for pain relieving medication that right. you were prescribed before, and now they're treating you like a drug addict. Yeah. Not like a medical patient, but like a drug addict. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Here's a tweet um, from Victoria59. Uh, no, that's not the one. Here's uh, at Rob Meikle. Um, it hurts my heart to know people need to kill themselves because our civilized society that has the means won't help with pain. And that's exactly, exactly what it is. Rob, here's an, uh, an email from Bob to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. The liberal socialists don't care about the people, they care about the vote. There we have places for addicts to go and get safe needles for their heroin, cocaine, drug of choice, but we can't care about people suffering from pain. Bob, not only that, the federal minister of health who provided us with no answers, really, kept thinking, kept saying my questions were fantastic, but didn't provide answers. The federal minister of health is talking about the uh, value I can't get this mouse to work as it's supposed to. Talking about the value of providing um, heroin, the heroin for generic drug addicts. We're back with Don Ray Downton, with Catherine, with Marvin Ross, who writes on health and uh, most recently has been writing on this opioid issue for HuffPost. Just go to HuffPost Canada and read Marvin's columns. Marvin, you've listened to Catherine, you listened to Dawn Ray, you know about the 30-year-old woman who's committed suicide, you know about others who've committed suicide, and you've written about most recently in the HuffPost about what British Columbia is doing and how they may be in fact in violation of the uh, the right we have to uh, pain relief. Please speak to that. Well, it's not just BC. The uh, I have to admit the headline for my latest uh, column wasn't the best. Um, the international agreements, well, the World Health Organization stipulates that uh, everybody's human right is to be pain-free. And it's uh, cruel and inhuman and degrading, they say, not to allow someone uh, to be relieved of their pain when we have the resources that can do that as we do with the opioid drugs. And I think people have to realize that chronic pain patients are not taking illegal drugs. They're taking drugs that are prescribed to them by doctors, and those drugs are approved for use by Health Canada uh, in Canada, the FDA in the U.S., and by a similar body in Europe, because the drug has been shown to actually do what it's supposed to do, that is to relieve pain with minimal side effects. And when a doctor is confronted with a patient in pain, they don't start them on the maximum dose of opioids. They start them on the least um, invasive strategy possible, and they work their way up. And when nothing works, they go to the opioid drugs. And then, again, they start at the bottom and they titrate up. 
So those people who are on large doses of opioids are on them because they've been working with a physician and it's been determined, determined through trial and error that that dose is the most effective at the least possible dose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what the government is doing is interfering with that um, patient-doctor relationship and imposing upon doctors what they can and cannot do. Well, I just read um, an email from a from an emergency department doctor who wrote about a 54-year-old patient who was denied his opioids because the owners of the clinic ordered the physicians to stop prescribing opioids. Yeah. It wasn't doctors who told them not to. It was the owners of the clinic. Well, and the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, uh, the regulatory body, because presumably of pressure from the government, yeah. are uh, forcing doctors to be not to prescribe or to be very cautious. Let me play something for you. And let me just play you 20 seconds from a conversation with Dr. Mary Redmond. She's the pain physician, pain specialist in Ottawa, who's on the program. She has 1,200 pain patients, and she was talking about how some doctors are giving up on treating pain patients. Listen. But I'm seeing colleagues right now with this business with our college here. There are colleagues who are being forced to stop practice or who are forcing, choosing to stop practicing pain medication management because of the, the, the drawn-out battle with the college. And these patients are going to be left high and dry. There'll be nobody to look after them. It's, it's, it's just, it's very, very sad mess. And she also said, Don Ray, that uh, her patients asked her, what would you do if you die? And she said, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, um, this is the problem for me. Uh, I, I lost my GP, or rather, she lost me. Uh, she, uh, just after Christmas, told me that she could no longer uh, prescribe uh, fentanyl for me. I had been on fentanyl, I have been on fentanyl for 12 years. Um, I had a relationship with my doctor for 25 years, and that was destroyed when the college told her that she could no longer prescribe for me. Luckily, I was able to, to go to my pain clinic, um, who had been supervising my GP in writing those prescriptions and advising her what dose to write for me and so on. I was able to go to that pain clinic, but now my pain doctor at the pain clinic seems to be retiring, and at the same time, the pain clinic seems to be ready or not ready to take in a, an infusion of patients from a, another practice mm-hmm. whose doctor is retiring. So. I really worry. I really, really worry. And I have known that this is coming for some time, and I've thought, what can I do? And I realize that there may well come a day when I can do nothing, and I'm not willing to return to the level of extreme pain that I had before I started on opioids. There's no point in living with that pain. And, and so I have a suicide plan, and we'll have to use it if it comes to that. You're putting, you're putting the governments and the doctors and the colleges on notice that if they take away the only relief you have from pain, that you will take your life. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the interesting thing is about that. Um, I had hoped to sort of go out with a flash in style if I had to go. And um, so I had, I, I, my husband knows to take my note and to show it broadly to media. But something that we've just run into recently is the fact that media down here, at least, have a tacit agreement with police and the coroner's office and who knows who not to report on suicides. 
So it's almost like my death will be as, as invisible as I have been as a chronic pain patient. I have been invisible. That's the problem with all chronic pain patients. They're invisible to government. God, government doesn't care that it's causing us harm because it doesn't reflect badly on them because we are invisible. Yeah, I and, just and heard... Even if, even if my, my suicide is noted, it will be noted as an opioid overdose. Not that it will be an opioid overdose, but it will be noted as somebody who was on fentanyl. All right. And so I will just become part of the story. So they'll use, they'll use you as part of their story. I heard Catherine gasp as you were talking. Yes. Catherine? Yes. Well, I, I just can't believe that, you know, Dawn's being pushed to this point, and I was, I was just thinking about myself. You know, mine goes beyond the pain uh, in that I suffer from a condition due to the the liver failure called ascites, and so my belly fills up with with liquid, and I um I can't eat. I'm down to probably a hundred pounds, and I'm thinking to myself. Maybe I'm not going to die from this liver failure. Maybe I'll die from malnourishment because if I just had, you know, drugs, I could actually eat a meal, you know, but I'm constantly throwing up. It's, it's just, and so I was just thinking about Dawn's situation and, you know, they're putting us through torture. <laughs> the fact that Dawn even has to think about suicide, I mean, not hasn't come that far for me, but I I feel like I'm just going to fade away to nothing. This is so. This is so awful to hear. It is so unnecessary. Uh, it it can be resolved very quickly by just continuing to provide you the relief that that, that you have been pres- provided provided by prescription. And, and as uh, as uh, uh, Marvin says, Marvin, these are prescription drugs. These are legal. These are legal drugs. Yeah, it's legal exactly. medication. Yeah, I have a letter from the top specialist in my province, pain specialist, saying, "Do not change her opioid dose. Do not change that. We've got her stable. She's eating everything." And then, you know, two or three months ago, this you know doctor from Toronto just popped into my life. I, uh, I I have to I have to end it here today, but we're going to be back at this next week, and we'll have a doctor, a very prominent physician, joining us from British Columbia, and he's going to speak to to this issue, and, and I'll I'll invite you both to come back. Yeah, uh, and Marvin too. Uh, Marvin, thank you for the time. Uh, if it weren't for you, and I guess for me, um, maybe the stories wouldn't be told. Yeah, and they have to be told. They do have to be told. Don Ray. Uh, I, oh, thanks. I, I wanted to say to I wanted to say to Catherine, Catherine, you're in you're in my thoughts. You have been for many weeks, and I I hope that you're okay. Well, yes, as okay you as you can. Be. On Ray. Yeah. Okay. Thank okay. you, thank you. Um, thanks, we're going to come back, and we're going to talk to Richard Lawhorn, Ph.D. He's an activist for chronic pain patients in the United States. His wife and his daughter suffer from chronic pain. He has a lot to say about this. Because, again, the 30-year-old woman about whom I wrote the, uh, read the email at the tr- start of the hour, she's an American, and it was an email that went to, uh, to Richard, my guest, in a minute, um, that I read. Stay with us. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
There are a few lines from an email from another emergency room doctor. As opioids are more available, this is a Canadian emergency room doctor, as was the other one. As opioids are more available, there's been a rise in opioid addiction in the general population, but that does not mean in deaths. But still, these are not reasons to deprive us and our patients of a great therapeutic tool for a terrible condition, acute and chronic pain, which is one of the leading causes to visit an emergency department in the Western world. If we should restrict or ban any substance that causes addiction and extremely common and serious health consequences, including numerous deaths down the road, why do we allow the sales of tobacco and alcohol? That physician should be joining us very soon as well. It is time you know these things. It's time you know it. Richard A. Red Lawhern, Ph.D., is a non-physician writer, research analyst, patient advocate, and website moderator for chronic pain patients, families, and physicians. His wife and daughter are chronic pain patients, and Richard has been writing about health issues and chronic pain issues for some 20 years. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Richard, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. Good to have you with us. Give me a sense before we uh, we have a few minutes here. But let's talk about. Uh, tell us about your wife and your daughter. My wife presented with a rare facial neuralgia problem about 21 years ago. It's called tic delarue or trigeminal neuralgia. There are very few people who have, it, but those who do experience a level of pain that is sometimes called among the worst in medical practice. My daughter is a Parkinson's patient who also has failed back surgery three times and has, uh, is on opioids and is being very, very tightly managed on opioids and with a lot of pressure to uh, relinquish them. Um, and right. I talk daily with people on social media in a wide variety of chronic pain groups, not only for these disorders, but but for many others. Now, I, I just wanted to, our listeners to have an idea of what it is your, your own uh, family members are, are living with. In your initial email to me, you wrote this, the CDC guidelines, the Centers for Disease Control guidelines, are outright fraudulent and dangerous due to the bias of the writer, writer's group, deliberate cherry-picking of research to support an anti-opioid political agenda, exclusion of contradicting research, and omission of vital Medicare science, on the action of opioids in moderating pain. Please speak to that. Right. Well, it turns out that the original group that wrote the CDC guidelines from which the Canadian guidelines are derived was very much influenced by addiction psychiatrists and the owners of, of chains of addiction treatment centers. And it didn't have a single practicing pain management specialist on the core group who had ever worked seriously outside a hospital. It had no ethicist on the group, uh, and it was generally dominated by people who regarded opioids as something that they needed to force out of practice. Now, they got caught when they did uh, some serious cherry-picking and, and, if you will, prejudicial-type selection of studies to base their, their guidelines on. They got caught by a group that went in and checked to see exactly whether or not everything was kosher. And they basically tried to write a case to disqualify opioids, which are effective and which are safe for the great majority of people, in favor of non-opioid medications and uh, behavioral therapies. But when they did that, they applied a criterion to the studies they used from the opioid side of this picture that they didn't apply to anything else. 
So there's a clear asymmetry. They tried to stack the deck. And moreover, they ignored an absolutely pressing issue that anyone in pain management should have some exposure to. And that is that there can never, ever, ever, ever be a single standard of opioid uh, dosage or of opioid exposure which represents a threshold of risk for addiction. There is no such thing, and there never will be such a thing because the, there is a tremendous variability between patients' ability to break down opioids into the forms which pass through the liver and then on through the blood-brain barrier to do their work in the brain. That's a genetic issue, and it can produce people who uh, metabolize or break down tremendously faster than the average, and others in whom they have very poor metabolism. They can be helped by opioids, but only by such large doses that doctors go 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 crazy over the whole thing because it's as if they had, you know they could take enough opioids mm-hmm. to knock over a horse and still be functional. Now you wrote also both U.S. and Canadian guidelines are phrased as voluntary. They are in fact no such thing. And later in the email, you write, U.S. doctors are being driven out of pain management practice in droves, dumping their patients without referral, and in many cases without support for opioid withdrawal. Patients are dying from both suicide and cardiac arrest induced by withdrawal. Exactly. I see this in, in uh, media every day. I see it in both Facebook and other social media. I see it rep- reported in venues like Stat News, which is a, a publication of the Boston Globe Group. I hear it from practicing doctors who have seen um, suicides in their own practices from people they were not allowed to treat under, under the concern for losing their licenses or on, on pain of being maliciously prosecuted. The DEA is deliberately conducting a witch hunt that has no relationship to any serious evidence of misbehavior on the part of doctors. Um, it's out there. It's absolutely out there, and it's out there by the hundreds. I talked to a patient today, not a patient, excuse me, a parent today, whose son blew his brains out after three years of contention with chronic pain when his primary care doctor not only discharged him from practice, but told him he had to go to a methadone center to get a treatment, and the methadone center said that since you're not an addict, we can't treat you. You're on your own. Richard, I, uh, it's a terrible place to end, but we do have to because we run out of time. At the same time, it leaves a very strong impression. You and I will talk again on this. Thank you so much for the time today. Good afternoon. Richard Lawhern, Ph.D., spouse and father of chronic pain patients, and he's been at this for more than 20 years and written in major publications about chronic pain and opioids. You know more now than you knew a few months ago, and so do I. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.